So on Tuesday, uh, something wonderful happened, um, and I'm not talking about the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship, though that was cool. That was cool. Uh, something more wonderful in my life happened on Tuesday. My wife and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And so, thank you. Wow. Thanks for the love. I appreciate it. Um, my wife, Pam, is an amazing person, a beautiful person, the love of my life. And she uh, influences this church through our marriage in ways that you'll never, ever know about. Uh, she is a gift, and we love this church. We love you dearly, and uh, I'm just so grateful to be married to her. And she has taught me so much through life. Uh, she's taught me to face the difficulties and challenges of life with grace and with patience and with endurance. With grace, with patience, and endurance. And endurance is something that is so needed in this day and age. The ability to persevere through difficult times and to stay faithful to what you value and you hold dear to the end is so critically important for the Christian life. And what we're going to see this morning in our text is a really cool thing because Jesus is gathering his closest, some of his closest friends and he's bringing them in and he's going to have a conversation with them about some future things happening in their life and future things happening in our lives. And so I, I'm really looking forward to diving in. We're in a series called Amazed, where we've been studying the book of Mark. Uh, the book of Mark has 16 chapters in it, and we've been going chapter by chapter, and now we find ourselves to Mark 13. And so I encourage you to have a Bible, uh, or if you have a Bible on your phone, to turn on your Bible or open your Bible to Mark 13. Uh, we're going to be talking about a farewell prophecy, because Jesus is saying goodbye to his earthly time on earth in this moment. He is moving towards the cross in the book of Mark. That's where we kind of step into this scene where Jesus is moving towards his journey to the cross. And this is one of the last moments he has with his closest friends. And there's some prophetic language here. There's some things that he's going to talk about of the future. There's some things he's going to talk about that was in their future that already happened. And there's going to be some things he's going to talk about in regards to our future as well. So um, today might leave you with more questions than answers, but that's okay. That's what happens in the Christian life. And so uh, I, my main goal and prayer has been that through all this, we will be drawn closer to Jesus Christ. So with that, let's dive in and look at um, Mark chapter 13. Before I read this, though, I want to uh, let you know a lot of what happens in this passage, a lot of what happens in this conversation that Jesus is having uh, centers around what's called the temple. He talks about the temple a lot. We're going to see lots of different things. You're going to learn a lot about this temple. But this temple was during Jesus' day. This is what the temple looked like, uh, the best we know. And it was the identity for the Jewish people. It was their identity as the people of God. It was also their main place of worship, and they would go and they would attend the temple and they would use the temple as part of their worship. It was something that held very dear to them. It was in Jerusalem, and much of what this discussion is going to be about is going to be about this temple. So with the temple kind of in our view, uh, let's dive in and look at Mark chapter 13 and read the first four verses. As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, this... 
One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. You can imagine them looking at that and hearing that, thinking, what on earth is he talking about? While he, and now here's what happens. So after they ask that question, they're, look, they're coming out of this temple. Now what Jesus does is he takes some of his followers, Peter and John and Andrew, and he brings them up to the Mount of Olives, which is about 150 feet above this temple. So after they walk out of this temple, they ask this question. Jesus walks them up this mount, and they're looking back down at the temple, and it probably was exactly like this kind of view. So this is what they're seeing, and Jesus in that place decides to have this intimate conversation with them about future things. With that in the background, he has this conversation That took 46 years to build, according to John chapter 2. And looking at the gold and the ivory and the stone, it's the temple that he uh, has in the background in these last moments of his ministry and life on earth. And he answers their deepest questions. We're going to see as he talks about the future, four things. He's going to talk about the beginnings, things that are going to happen before the main event. Then he's going to talk about the main event itself. Then he's going to talk about his return. And then he's going to talk about the timing, which is what everybody wants to know about. But we have to go through the first part first. So let's talk about the beginnings. Look at verses 5 to 8. Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And these are the beginnings of birth pains. Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed when these things happen. Don't jump to quick conclusions. Don't say, okay, now the end is coming. Don't be alarmed by all these things that are supposed to happen. And he names three of them, false teachings, wars, and earthquakes. He's saying when these things come, it's not necessarily the end is imminent. It means all things are in process going towards the end times. He's saying don't be alarmed. These are foreshadowings. These are things that are going to come. And we've seen these things throughout history up to now. In fact, check this out. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, there's only been 268 years that have been war-free. In the last 3,420 years of world history that's been recorded, so this doesn't even count like, this is just what's recorded. There's been only 268 years where there's not been a war on the earth. So Jesus said these things will happen. They will be uh, natural in a way. This is what will happen before the end. And then he says to them, and something personal is going to happen to you as the end comes about as well. Look at verses 9 to 11. 
This is where it gets personal. He says, but you, be on your guard that they will hand you over to local courts. He's speaking to his disciples. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. We saw this happen in the book of Acts. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations, meaning all ethnic groups. And you will, so when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you will say. But say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. In this intimate conversation with his friends, he's saying you will experience persecution. There will be major persecution from the government, the Roman Empire, that is kind of oppressing the Jewish people during this time. But look at who Jesus focuses on. He says you will be flogged where? In the synagogues you'll get persecuted by the church leaders of the time as well. And we saw that happen in the book of Acts. We see that take place. Even after the book of Acts, the Roman, then it went into the government. The Roman Empire, Nero himself, when they said, hey, Nero, the streets of the Roman Empire, especially in Jerusalem, are awful dark. And he said, well, take the Christians, tie them to the posts, soak them with gas and fuel, and then light them on fire. Let them light the way. And he did. He was an evil man. We see this evil persecution happen and take place. But the persecution was a witness to the world about who Jesus was. God in his sovereignty used this persecution as bad as it was to press the church out of Jerusalem into the Gentile lands to fulfill the prophecy that this wasn't just about the Jewish people but the entire world and also to bring the gospel and the message of Jesus to those outside the Jewish faith. And the fact that you and I as non-Jewish people are here worshiping Jesus is tied to this fruit of what happened in the persecution. It went global because of that. See, God is in control even of the horrible things that happen in our life. He goes on to tell them not to fear. Do not be worried about what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you words. And we see this happen in the book of Acts. It happened, Paul was before King Agrippa, and he had the words from the Holy Spirit to speak. And we see it happen with Peter and John and the Sanhedrin as they were before the religious rulers who were trying to persecute them, and they had the words to speak from the Holy Spirit. We see it in our recent history as well in this earth with Dietrich Bonhoeffer had the words to speak to the Nazi regime. We see it happen countless times in several different lands around our nation today where persecution is happening to Christians and they're able to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and speak what God wants them to speak. Jesus' promise went through the generations and still continues. And then he says they will experience something else. He says they will experience personal hatred. Personal hatred. Look at verses 12 to 13. It says, brother will betray brother to death and his father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures, there's that word again, the one who endures to the end will be saved. One commentator, and if you, we use that word a lot, you may not know what commentator is. There's a group of 
Bible scholars who write commentaries that help us study. And as I was studying this passage this week, one commentator said this. He said, the radical commitment which the gospel demands can disrupt even the most natural and sacred human relationships. The radical commitment which the gospel demands can disrupt even the most natural and sacred human relationships. Human relationships are a gift from God. We are to enjoy them. We are to love them. But they come second place. He is in first place. They come after him. He is the one who is first place in our lives and our hearts. And we tend to think through just our context alone, our day that we live in our city, in our home, in our world. That's normal because that's what we live. That's what we experience day in and day out. But we must remember that Christianity is global. We must remember that we have brothers and sisters of other ethnicities around the world where they probably experience this to greater degrees than we do now here. I think of Christians who have conversion in Muslim countries where this is a reality, where to follow Christ means you have to turn from your whole family. And in verse 13, it says, you will be hated by everyone. Everyone is meant in general terms there. This is happening. Did you notice it's not very popular anymore to stand for what the Bible says in our day and age? Have you noticed it's not very popular to live out your Christian faith in this world? As one theologian put it that I read this week, evangelical Christians are not the cool kids at the lunch table anymore. We can almost... It's amazing if we can ever find a seat at the table. One commentator that I was studying wrote the commentary in 1989, and he wrote this. Evangelicals sometimes receive favorable press from the media, but they should never forget the same media powers can quickly turn the world's opinions against evangelical Christians. 1989, that was written. I think we're finding ourselves in the latter part of that statement versus the first part of that statement more and more. But here's the deal. Throughout the New Testament, we are warned time and time again, any follower of Jesus that wants to conform their life to his message will at some point experience persecution and trials because of it. Any follower of Jesus who wants to conform their life to his image, to his message, to his way, will experience persecution and suffering at some point because of it. It will happen. But that person in the midst of that suffering can experience the hand of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the love of God in a way that they never would if they didn't experience that suffering. In that place of suffering, in that place of trial, there is a grace that comes from God that allows you to stand and take what he uh, is allowing into your life to be a witness to the world about who he is. There's a grace that comes. Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and he said, when you come to that place, when you are being persecuted and suffering because you're living for Christ, he called that you're living in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That place of trial can be a fellowship with Jesus. 
Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are you when you endure persecution and trial because of him. Though persecution can, will come to God's people, there is this precious, precious promise that he will be there in the midst of it. And then the end of verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who follows Jesus through thick and thin, through good and bad, through when it, easy times and difficult times, will be saved. We need to set our sights on the end and endure. I opened with endurance, and that's why it's so important. Following Jesus is a marathon with hardships and struggles along the way. Many drop out, but the Bible says those who are true believers will hang on to the end through the good and the bad. They will keep going no matter what happens in their life, no matter what happens in terms of cultural shift. They will not be swayed. They will continue through. And the fact that Jesus mentions that in this passage gives us hope because he knows he knows what's happening. We see things in this world and we wonder what is happening. Everything's out of control. God, no, Jesus said it's going to happen. He knows. And so there's trust in our heart that we can trust God no matter what we see in this life, in this day, in this age. It's not out of control. God has it in control in the palm of his hand. Every moment, it's all working towards his grand plan when Jesus comes back. Jesus said this would happen. The things you see on the news that make you shudder, he knew it would happen. All is well with God. Everything is in his control. So let's look at the events that are going to unfold here. Let's read verses 14 to 23. When you see the abomination of desolation... We're going to get into what that means in a second. Standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. A man in the field must not go back and get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. This is Jesus' words. Pray it won't happen in the winter, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see here is the Messiah. See there. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. You probably, at this point, I'm assuming as I picture Jesus with his followers having this talk, I think he motioned to the temple when he said, you'll see the abomination and desolation, and they would know exactly what he was talking about. That's a quote directly out of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and Daniel eleven thirty-one, Because things happened in the past day from where the disciples are with Jesus talking, things happened in their past to that temple that they knew about. And for us to grab a hold of what this text means, I need to teach you a little bit about temple history, all right? So that 
temple I showed you a picture of wasn't the first temple. That was actually the second temple because the first one was destroyed. The first temple came on the scene and it was completed in 957 B.C. by King Solomon. And then it was destroyed in 586 when Babylon, Babylon came in and took over Jerusalem, sacked the whole city, destroyed and leveled the temple completely. Then you see in stories like Nehemiah and Ezra where God put in the heart of his people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And God laid it on the hearts of kings who were ruling over them, oppressing them. Even though they were oppressing the Jewish people, they gave them permission to go back and build the temple because God was moving in the persecution and the oppression. And so the second temple began to be built in 538 B.C. under four different Babylonian kings who were oppressing the Jewish people. It was completed in 515 B.C. Several times after 515 B.C., parts of the temple would be destroyed or damaged, and they would fix it. And the inner circle that Jesus was talking about in this moment, when he talked about when you see the abomination of desolation, an event that took place in 200 B.C. would have popped into their head. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about because in 200 B.C., there was an evil king named King Antiochus. And King Antiochus came into Jerusalem and he wanted to take away the Jewishness out of the Jewish people and make them Greek. And so he walked into that temple and he desecrated it. He took a pig, which was unclean to the Jewish religion, put it on the altar and sacrificed it and said, from now on, only pigs can be sacrificed on this altar. He took a statue of Zeus and put it in the Holy of Holies. The Jewish people were appalled. They were horrified. They tried an uprising to overthrow this king, and it didn't work. They were all killed and wiped out. That happened in 200 B.C. And finally, about 40 years later, in 167 B.C., a Jewish man named Judah Maccabee led another uprising to take back the temple, and he succeeded. He kicked out that king and his armies. The Jewish people came back into power, and that's what the Jewish people celebrated Hanukkah, the taking back of that temple. And so the, Jew, the disciples, after hearing Jesus talk about it, would have that in their mind. And then in 20 B.C., Herod the Great restored and remodeled the temple, the picture of the one I showed you. He restored the things that were damaged and remodeled it. That's why they called it Herod's Temple, because he did that. And now in the story in 33 AD, about 13 years after Herod gave a makeover to the temple, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and what he's referring to, to much of what we read in verses 14 to 25 is the fact that that temple they were looking at from that hillside will be destroyed again in 70 AD. The Romans will come and destroy that temple and wipe it out. It was at 33 AD, Jesus is having this conversation with them. It was completely destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years later. And in verses 14 to 23, he hints towards things that might be in our future when he returns and some Scholars have said that, but the overwhelming majority and thrust of this text from 14 to 23, Jesus is talking about what happened leading up to that temple being destroyed in 70 AD. When the temple was wiped out, horrible things happened. There's a historian named Josephus who is not a Christian, who just was a historian who recorded these events. 
And he said that when the Roman army came in 70 AD to destroy that temple, people were fleeing Jerusalem like crazy. He said people were leaving Jerusalem like swimmers deserting a sinking ship. They scattered. And if you read verses 14 to 16, it looks like people scattering like swimmers from a sinking ship. The horror was there that was described. Uh, described by this uh, theologian, or I'm sorry, this historian Josephus, in a book called, entitled, The War, he writes about what it looked like that time when the army went through and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. He says, the roofs were thronged with famished women with babies in in their arms, and the alleys lied with corpses of the elderly. Children and young people swollen from starvation roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. But there was no lamenting or wailing because famine had strangled their emotions. Jerusalem could not handle all the dead, so they had to throw them over the wall. The silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping money from the bodies. He laid out this picture that Jesus identifies and writes about and tells the story about that we see in 14 to 23. And then having tell them about the fall of the temple, Jesus in verse 24 jumps thousands of years ahead. The rest of this passage we're going to see sometimes he talks about pre-temple destruction, then he talks about times coming for our future as well. Jesus does not tell them when he's going to return, but he does tell them it will happen after this temple destruction in 70 AD. Let's look at when he talks about his return, verses 24 to 27. But in those days after that tribulation, talking about the time of the temple destruction, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. As the church of Jesus Christ, this is our dream. This is our hope. The church of the ages and the church in the past, the early church called the returning of Christ the blessed hope. And one of the things I fear about Christians in our day and age is we get so caught up in the here and now and what's happening in our lives today and the world we live in today that we forget all about the blessed hope. We forget that a time is coming when Jesus is going to return. He is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to rid Satan forever. He's going to destroy him. All sin, sickness, suffering will be done. His authority and kingdom will be completed. It will be established. And it will rule forever and ever and ever. And his church, the people who are following Jesus, will rule with him in that moment. And it will be amazing. It will be beautiful. It will be awestrucking, and it will last forever and ever. This is the blessed hope. Don't forget, Christian, your blessed hope. Don't forget what is coming. 
It says here there will be a heavenly earthquake and all these strange cosmological things will happen. And in the middle of that cosmological confusion, Jesus Christ is going to return to earth again, but not as a baby like he did before. He's going to return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Satan and sin and suffering will be done away with. And a new heavens and a new earth will be established. And this is what we need to set our hearts onto. This is what needs to be the anchor of our life. This moment when Jesus returns is what needs to be fixated in our souls. There's so much Old Testament imagery in Jesus' words here. And then the amazing question comes, when will this happen? When will this happen? Look at verses 28 to 37. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. This is Jesus talking. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father Watch, be alert, for you do not know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or the early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone." Be alert. Through this time, these verses 28 to 37, Jesus goes back and forth from the destruction temple time again to the future when he comes back. And here is what he is getting at overall in this passage. No one knows the day or hour he will come, but we must be ready. We must be ready. We must be constantly waiting, constantly alert, constantly enduring to the end. And in the endurance, we are ready and waiting that he could come back in any moment. We can't let ourselves fall asleep. I don't know about you, sometimes spiritually, I lose sight of this blessed hope and fall asleep and get caught in the rut of the day and the here and now. And Jesus is warning us right now not to do that, to keep his coming in the front of our mind. There was a preschooler named Ben. And Ben grew up in a church much like this one. And his parents, he grew up in a Christian home, and his parents would tell him all about Jesus. And they'd talk about Jesus and talk about giving your life to Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus. And they would ask Ben, hey, Ben, do you want to give your life to Jesus? Do you want to become a follower of Jesus and have a relationship with him? And he said, no, not right now. And he said, okay, no problem. And he would continue in the church and the children's ministry and these different things. And they'd ask him, Ben, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And he said, no, not right now. And then there was one night after dinner where Ben told his parents, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ and begin a relationship with him. And his parents were excited, and they said, yeah, we can do that. And then Ben got up from the dining room table and began to walk upstairs to his room. And his mom and dad kind of looked at each other and were shocked by this, and so they said, well, maybe he wants to pray and ask Jesus into his heart and his room. So they walked up the stairs and followed him, and they opened the door, and here was Ben in his room, And instead of being on the floor on his knees to pray, that's not what he was there for. He had a Sesame Street suitcase. And Ben started packing his toys and his clothes 
and putting him in the suitcase because Ben thought that when he gave his life to Jesus, that means he's going to go and be with Jesus in heaven. May we have the same faith as Ben. May we so connect the idea of giving our life to Jesus and surrendering to him that is linked perfectly and strongly with the idea that Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth again and set up his earthly kingdom, that we are so connecting those two that when we give our lives to Christ, we're giving our lives to his kingdom and his return when he comes. As we close, I want to just give you some takeaways as we leave this place. First of all, stay away. Stay away. As a pastor, I want to encourage you to stay away from false teachers that will try to tell you when Jesus is going to return. Jesus clearly says, no one knows the day. And yet this passage, because he said, look for the times, has caused this craziness of people trying to figure it all out and trying to get it all down so that we can kind of live how we want until this certain things happen and then we'll get our lives in order. That's nonsense. There's no greater disobedience to this verse than trying to figure out when Jesus Christ is going to come. So stay away from those people. I remember when I became a Christian in 1987, someone gave me a book and it was called The 88 Reasons Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. Guess what? It didn't happen. Don't fall for that stuff. As your shepherd, as your pastor, I'm telling you, stay away from that. Number two, stay awake. Though that's true, stay awake. I encourage you to stay away from people who make predictions, but yet I encourage you that Jesus use this analogy not to fall asleep, but be ready any moment for his return. Don't fall asleep. Picture the bus driver with a bus full of kids falling asleep. Picture a babysitter with unattended young children falling asleep. Picture a guard at a prison falling asleep and letting prisoners escape and do evil. Don't fall asleep. In this day and age, we can't afford to fall asleep spiritually. We must stay awake. Read your Bibles and read the newspaper. Open your heart to God's word and open your eyes to what's happening in the world. Stay awake and be on guard of what's happening. Number three, stay alert. People who are alert are not just awake, but they are awake and they are aware. There's a sense of urgency, not complacency. There's a sense of waiting for this blessed hope and wanting to be ready for it, not just resting as a chaplain of the police department and fire department in our city, I have the opportunity to ride in squad cars of police departments in our city. And I just want to side note here and say shout out to the first responders in our city. They're a group of dedicated professional people that do amazing things that are deserving of our respect and our prayers and our honor. But I can tell you this, when I'm riding with an officer in our town, one of the things I notice about law enforcement officers when they are in go mode, they see everything. They could see yards away someone not wearing a seatbelt in their car as they're driving past them. They could see someone texting as they're driving yards away. They could see people who they're looking for and say, oh, that's so-and-so. I gotta get. They, they are on guard. There's this what's called hypervigilance, and it's an actual physiological thing that happens when your body is on alert. And they are on alert, and they are watching and seeing everything going on when they are on target. We need to be like that spiritually. We need to be hyper-vigilant of what's going on in our hearts 
in terms of sin towards God. We need to be hyper-vigilant and aware of what's going on in the world around us and things happening. We need to be hyper-vigilant about what's going on in the church and make sure it stays unified and that there's no uh, destruction or division happening. We need to be on guard and looking and staying alert. And finally, we need to stay hopeful. We need to stay hopeful. Church, never, ever, 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 ever forget your blessed hope. When this life causes you to shudder because of a horrible thing that happens, remember your blessed hope. When this culture mocks the things of God and you see things on the news that you can't even fathom and put into a place, don't forget your blessed hope. When you find yourself weary from sickness and sin and suffering, remember your blessed hope. Remember that you have the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, living in your heart, and one day he is going to come again. And when he does, his rule and his kingdom will have no end. He will make all the injustices just. He will bring forth the power and the glory and the honor that will destroy sin and Satan, and he will rule forever and ever. He gets the last word. What you see now, don't let it discourage you because he knows it's coming. And for a period of brief time, he's letting it happen. But a day's going to come when it stops and the reign and the rule of God will be completed on earth and we will see it. Be hopeful. There's no better picture for us to grab than that as we enter our time of communion. And so I'm going to give you a moment to just be quiet before God And in that moment, I just want you to remember the blessed hope. Remember the fact that Jesus is going to return and he's going to set up his kingdom in his love and his power and his mercy and his grace and his justice and his holiness. And maybe in these times before we go into communion, you need to take that time and and be encouraged because maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed by the world right now. Or maybe in this time of silence, you are being convicted of a sin that you need to ask forgiveness for. Whatever God's doing, I just want to let him have some moments before we enter communion and do his work. So take some moments before God now. Father in heaven, I ask as your church, as the church of your son Jesus, give us the grace and the power to never forget our blessed hope. To never forget that you are coming again to never get so caught up in our own lives and in the here and now that we forget a day is coming that's going to last for eternity where we will be with you as your people. And so God, I just ask, even as we take communion, you'd help us to remember that fact that you are the Savior of the world who died for our sins, but the King of kings and Lord of lords who's going to come again and rule and reign forever. We thank you for that gospel. We thank you for that story. We thank you that that is your mission and that you want to bring forward. That's your agenda. Help our hearts embrace that agenda, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And when he gave him thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that he is the Savior of the world who cleanses us from our sins. In righteousness, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows us to live in his power and his ways. And we thank you for the blessed hope that we hang on to that you will come again and your kingdom will rule and it will have no end and you will rule and reign forever and ever. And we pray this all in your matchless name. Amen. Please stand.